Welcome to the Canadian Orthodox Podcast, a show devoted to the exploration of the Christian faith in all of its mystery and diversity within the unique intersections of the Canadian context. Well, hello again. After a nearly four month hiatus, we are finally back with a new episode. When we released our last roundtable discussion in July, I actually already had today's interview recorded and had only intended to take a few weeks off um, before releasing the episode after after Lindsay and I settled into our new place here in Vancouver. Um, As is by now obvious, life happened to all of us, and for differing reasons, Doug, Chris, and I all needed to take a much more um, extended break from this project than we had initially planned. Nevertheless, we are back with four more episodes slated for the next two months, and I'm thrilled to kick things off again with a conversation I recorded back in April with Abbotsford-based singer, songwriter, recording artist, speaker, and songwriting instructor Brian Dirksen. Brian has had an extremely influential voice in the world of contemporary Christian music for more than 30 years, with 10 solo albums, 5 music films, 2 musicals, and more than 20 awards, including a Juno and a GMA Covenant Lifetime Achievement Award to his name. If you, like me, grew up in the Canadian Evangelical Church, you probably grew up singing his songs, such as Refiner's Fire, Faithful One, and Hope for the Nations, among others. He's been a tremendous influence for myself and my my own approach and posture as a worship leader over the years, and it was just a joy to be able to sit down with him and get to hear more of his story and perspective. So with that, let's break the hiatus and dive into our conversation. Well, thanks so much for chatting today. It's uh, it's exciting to be able to meet you, even if it's virtually um, or over a Zoom screen. But I mean, that's been most of the social interaction for the past year on my end. So this is essentially the equivalent of, of meeting in a coffee shop. It's crazy, but true. And uh, we keep hoping that the crazy will eventually go away, but it keeps hanging around. Yes. So maybe um, as we get started, I know um, most people listening will will more than likely be familiar with you and familiar with your music in particular, but um, maybe just as we get started, let's um, begin with a bit of your story and um, that kind of in connection to the community of faith that you inhabit now, but also maybe some of that background journey into what brought you into um, what you do now, which is leading worship and, and, and write music. Okay, well, um, I am speaking to you today from the home where I was raised. I was four years old when my parents bought this old farmhouse and five acres outside of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And so it's, it's uh, yeah, there's a lot of roots here. Childhood spent here on this little piece of land. We we were a part of our local Mennonite Brethren Church just down the road, East Aldergrove Mennonite Brethren, which is now called Ross Road Community Church. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I, I grew up kind of in a house of faith and in the broader community of faith, but I struggled with faith, I think, in the context of 
you know, the broadest term would be organized religion. Uh, I, I, mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I experienced God or the love of God or the creativity mm-hmm. in our local environment, but, mm-hmm. but there was stability, okay? And, you know, so, so as struggle, as much as I struggled with it, I always have to remember that I was given the gift of stability, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. My, my mom and dad loved each other. They didn't fight. They, they didn't um, abuse any substances. They were, they were doing the best they could, you know, they were both teachers mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so that's a bit of the environment that I, I grew up in. And if you, it's kind of interesting, if you fast forward all the way to the present day, you know, I'm a part of a faith community called The Table, which is affiliated with the Vineyard, and um, it's a small faith community. And in some ways, we haven't missed a beat with the pandemic because, um we're just a small group of 30 to 40 people doing life together, mm-hmm. supporting each other. Um, we just, some of the, the only rhythmic change or only change that we've had to do is whenever we would meet, we would always share a meal. It was about the literal and metaphorical table and we would always have communion. And uh, now we have to, we can't share the meal in person and we still do communion but yeah, so yeah, so it's like, wow. And in between there, from where I started the story to now, you know, I'm 55 now. So um, kind of connected with the vineyard movement when I was 19. That probably changed the arc because it was a faith community that was open to, and it, not just open to, but really encouraging of new expressions and done in a very um, kind of contemporary mother tongue kind of way that and um, but and it was about intimacy and that's what I was Mm. for and that's what I already felt drawn to so yeah I mean, you can pull up more if you want. Yeah, for sure. Well, something that I want to jump on is that idea of a mother tongue because you described your first context or your introduction really to the Christian faith in the in the community that you were brought up within as this point of stability that you even in the midst of that stability didn't find something that you could really connect to as in an experience of the living presence of God um I'm curious what what were some of those elements that you felt resonated with you when you first encountered the vineyard movement in terms of an expression of faith that didn't feel foreign to you or um, felt like it resonated with who you were and, and the context that you were within? Well, I would say that the contrast for me was growing up um, in you know a conservative evangelical church. There was um, formality. Um, and I think I was craving a bit more relational informality to gatherings so that there was this freedom that we could just come and be ourselves. I think the other thing, yeah. there was a, there was a cultural gap with the music. 
as a boy and as a teenager when I would go to church, I felt like the music that was played was from another world. It was from another mm. time. It was from another culture. Because I because actually my heart was to lean in to open be open to God. I kept on trying to lean into it and I felt like I couldn't get across the, the canyon, so to speak, culturally. Like a language barrier. Yeah, yeah, almost like like a different dialect. I kept on looking for translations, you know. Okay, well, how do I translate mm. this to my world? And, you know, when I was starting to listen to um, both the, you know, mainstream kind of folk rock i was listening to the emerging ccm um world coming out of the jesus people revolution uh you know and revival that so so the music that was touching my heart i never heard in church i heard mm -hmm. on the radio mm -hmm. and i i started hearing at like these christian concerts these special events with people like phil Kagi and and so um, when I connected with the vineyard at 19 and through my early 20s, I found that the, the need for translation was gone. I could be myself. Uh, everybody was wearing blue jeans and T-shirts. And the people who were leading any of the meetings weren't um, putting on formal airs or like the barriers were gone. Of course, it, it, it took me um, years later to really actually begin to, begin to appreciate formality in certain ways, in certain settings, mm. rituals that can, that can anchor us. But I, I wasn't there at that point. I wanted fresh. I wanted, I wanted real. Within that, at what point did you start writing music? Or I guess maybe prior to that, did you begin writing songs before you started leading worship? Or, or which came first within that? I, I, did, I did start dabbling with songwriting as a teenager in high school. My high school... Um, which was a, a private Christian school. It was. It was in. I was in grade eleven, I think, when my teacher approached me, and he said, "Brian, I think you could write some of your own songs." And I remember going, mm. "Wow, okay." And um, so, so the seed was planted there. I, I started dabbling with it in my teens. We had a little um, kind of garage band. Um, and we started actually having a, a following locally and several hundred people started showing up to our gigs when mm. when I was just like 16 years old. But I, I, I wouldn't have definitely said, oh, I'm a songwriter. I was just, I was just dabbling around the edges of it. And then when I kind of went through a, a, a type of spiritual awakening and a real, I guess, an aha moment that, okay, maybe maybe I'm not connecting with a lot of the worship music that we sing in our churches, but maybe I should write mm. some that comes, that is mother tongue to me, both musically, mm. lyrically, culturally. And so that progressed uh, shortly after the, the birth of our first daughter, Rachel. So I was 23. So by the time, let's say from 20 to 23, I spent those years leading worship uh, and doing some kind of 
even other like Christian concerts and stuff. And I was for the most part happy that other people were writing some new songs that I could relate to, that I could sing as my own, until what I call a gap revealed itself to me when I had a couple of profound experiences with God and and connection with my baby daughter and just realizing Mm -hmm. the whole... Uh, parental metaphor for God and the incredible um, love and acceptance apart from performance that was in that metaphor. And out Mm. of that experience, I wrote a couple of songs that to try and fill that gap. And um, one was called Father, I Want You to Hold Me. And one was called Faithful One. And something, you know, started happening. People started resonating with those songs. And, um, carried on (laughs) yeah yeah well having spent the amount of time that you have um leading worship and and writing songs that have been for the most part contextualized within the christian faith community um i want to ask a bit of a bit of a loaded question um what is worship you know that's not the easiest question to answer simply, but let me, I'll just say a few mm-hmm. things that come to mind, okay, when I hear that question. I, it's loving surrender of all I am to all God is. You know, it's, it's, it's like this opening up of oneself to the presence of love and love mm-hmm. that is so complete so unconditional and then so eternal that we are it's like we are undone and then re redone you know we're we're put we're we're both undone but we're put back together now that that sounds kind of like you know mystical and it's it's you know how do you how do you earth that how do you make that practical and i actually took me a lot of years to get to this point but the best way to to earth to to make this huge concept of loving and worshiping god practical starts with uh our breath and um i've i've become more and more aware of what some call breath prayer very simple act of breathing in and breathing out, you become aware of your dependence on mm. someone, something greater than yourself. That yeah. you're like, and and they talk about how some scholars talk about how the one of the ancient names for God that became the unmentionable name for the Jewish people was Yahweh, and this. And you start, you can hear it in the very breath of a human being just when they're alive, right? So this loving surrender of all that I am Mm -hmm. is, is, is as grounded and is as practical as every breath I take. And then out of that breath, I mean, you know, there was, there's, um, I don't know, I can't, the epistle, um, doesn't, the reference doesn't come to mind right now pray without ceasing or um jesus talks about the uh, the parable where he tells a parable to 
about this persistent widow because he wants to say we should always pray mm-hmm. and never give up. Well, this thing, how do you pray yeah. without ceasing? How do you pray without... Ne- and all of a sudden you go, if your prayer is anchored in your breath, that's mm-hmm. a way that you can pray without ceasing. It's not probably not the mm-hmm. only way, but it, you know, so it's like, like for me, as I, as I get older and as I do this longer and longer, everything, I, I keep on longing for a distilling it down to even simpler, more just rooted practices. And, and the mm-hmm. breath prayer has become that for me. And then of course it can, it grows from that to, well, I would say if we want to stay in the, in the, in that area, I, I've been really shaken this last year by the last words of George George Floyd. I can't breathe. I've been thinking over and over again that that ultimately our calling. I mean, the best way to fulfill the 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 trip. What I call the triple love command: love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The best way to fulfill that is first of all to breathe in a way that is acknowledging God, that is receiving God's presence, the very breath in our lungs, and to and to say his name when we breathe, and then to turn and help others breathe. I mean, to walk in justice, to... to um, so for me, it, it, it comes... It's, it's interesting how this last year, whenever you talk about worship or prayer or justice mm-hmm. or or the environment, or all these crazy, huge issues, or mystical questions. For me, it comes down to learning to slow down, to breathe, and to help others breathe. Like, to help others Mm -hmm. know that they are loved, that they are image bearers of God, and that we can help each other, um, you know, practically artistically you know i love the artistic expression of that but the artistic expression can't be completely separated from the practical expression right yeah when i think what's so beautiful about the practice of breath prayer is how grounded it is in just the reality of our physiology um our dependence of god extending even to the very fact that apart from this breath we don't have life um in the full scope of 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 that meaning not just in this disconnected ethereal mystical sense but in the in the very reality i um you know i think of of the words of paul when he when he he quotes the um it's a hymn to Zeus in, in Acts 17, but he says, in him we live and move and have our being, or in Colossians when he speaks about in him um, all things are held together, or he is before all things and in him all things are held together. And so even in that act of breath, there's this awareness of our grounded life and the grounded life in community and that interconnectivity. That's That's beautiful. Yeah. You know, and then of course, you know, the COVID pandemic and how it attacks people's ability to breathe. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I just, I, it's like, I just can't, I just can't stop thinking about this, this, this mm. way of approaching it. And it's very practical. You know, I, I've been in very stressful situations over the last few years and I found, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to miss my flight back when the, you know, planes were flying and I, I would practice breath prayer when I'm, I'm, 
I um, just got my vaccination uh, for COVID and I'm a very medically queasy person. I don't like B-L-O-O-D or N-E-E-D-L-E-S. It's, it's very, very terrible when every time you open your news app on your phone, all you see is icons and pictures of people getting jabs, right? Anyway, I go to get my vaccination and, and, and um, what do I do? I sit there and I practice breath prayer. You know, it's, it's very, it's very grounding. It's very, and one of the words I, one of my breath prayer words is Abba. You know, just this again that parental metaphor for God, um, um, and the word that, of course, Jesus used when he prayed. Um, this, mm. you know, and it's just, it's just centering me. Mm. I'm, I'm a loved. I'm a loved son of God, not mm. because I accomplish anything, but because I exist. Yeah, yeah. And what's beautiful about that too is that you have this grounded practice that's cultivating an imagination, and there's a trajectory through that grounded practice that points you beyond it. I remember when I was a um, youth and worship pastor, and when we would do the um, team practices and and um, music training and all of this and we I, I think particularly particularly at the point of the pandemic but this was built up over over years prior as well um, we'd ask the question what is worship and that would be this orienting thing that we do kind of at the beginning of the year but throughout the year as we would do our practices we'd, we'd return to that question and I would ask it as in like what do we what do we have to do in order to have worshipped and what do we do or what are we doing when we worship and what do we have to do in order to have worshipped and um returning to that question and, and like you said trying to distill it down to um its purest sense because when we think of worship at this point we often think about the genre of music um, or we think about whatever particular faith community we're a part of, we think about what happens, you know, from 9.30 to 11.30 in the morning. Um, and if we're, as you said, in worship, um, opening ourselves up to the reality of who God is, if we're surrendering to him and, and allowing ourselves to become open and aware in dependence to him, then what we have to do in order to have worshipped is anything that directs us towards that end, um, which is a particularly helpful in this time when we, you know, are many of our assumed or or normative practices of worship have kind of been removed from us, um, and so allowing ourselves to be open to any practice that directs ourselves towards that end, and when we're aware of what that's doing, um, that's so beautiful. Yeah. And that's so important is that we recognize that our practices um, are, were, are dependent upon certain things that at times can be removed from us, right? Like we, mm -hmm. we develop this, this elaborate practice and then we start defending it or, you know, fighting over it. And then all of a sudden something comes along and goes, well, we can't actually gather. And that whole practice is built around gathering. And of course, we, 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 we are drawn to that because we are interconnected. So the whole draw wow. towards gathering is, is part of who we are. But we, we have to have some flexibility always. 
And, um, you know, I, I miss, boy, I, I, I miss the gathering. I miss the sound of our voices in a circle. I miss being able to walk up to the front. And when I, you know, when I visit my brother's Anglican church and I, I put my hands out and he says the body of Christ broken for you, Brian, and he puts it, it puts this little wafer in my hand and I, I put it into my mouth and I kneel or whatever, all those things, those practices, I, 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 I miss them. But, mm. I, but I recognize that with every breath I take, with every day I'm given, that, um, that I can still worship and that I can still lovingly surrender to God. I can open myself up, right? And I'm not nobody can ever take that you know sometimes people protest you know i've seen you know churches protest against government health orders or different things i'm in alberta and that's uh that's a huge thing out here yeah and you're and they say use language like you're taking away our right to worship or whatever mm-hmm. well uh, you're 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 confusing some things in my mind um I, I did hear one really interesting story from a little while ago, and that was mm-hmm. when um, this church in Vancouver was had set up this soup kitchen for the needy, and the members of their uh, neighborhood com- went to the government and complained that these riffraff, so to speak, were now sullying their neighborhood and that they should issue an you know, an order for the church to stop this. And, mm-hmm. um, and the church's response was wonderful and held up by the court of law. No, actually, mm-hmm. we have freedom of worship in our country, and this is how we worship. We mm-hmm. help the needy. And, you know, we're sorry that those people don't like us helping the needy, but we are compelled to do this because this is our worship. You know, and that's kind of, you know, it's like, it's like breathing and helping others breathe, right? That's, that's, that's what it is. I mean, that's what worship, a life of worship is, is that we open ourselves up and and with every breath, we are taking in the love and the presence of God. And then we are opening our eyes and looking around us and say, who needs help breathing, so to speak? You know, who, who needs help living? um eating you know staying alive you know i don't know it's pretty simple and pretty hard at the same time (laughs) yes yes i've always i've always wondered um i mean i've thought this in in regards the to the eucharist in in particular but if all that we ever did as a church if all that we did was gather together in whatever way is possible i mean this thought was prior to covid but um if all that we did was gather together and we just remembered our participation within God and our remembering as a community interconnected to one another, if that's all we did, how would that in and of itself have a capacity to transform the way that we live and engage as communities? If, if we actually do that in a way where the, you know, the word remember, of course, means to re member versus dismember right so so when we when when jesus said do this 
and remember like to remember me it's about forming mm-hmm. christ in us so that we represent christ to the world so that we are reformed we we re-recognize our our interconnectedness like it's impossible mm-hmm. to go through that in a genuine real way and it not have impact the way you live and the way you know so you know I mean, obviously it's possible to do anything in a way that is um only just the form of it and and then that's what we start fighting over right the forms mm. the 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 packaging mm. never un yeah so I think that's what yeah. I think that's the whole point, right? Is that we're we're trying to re become remembered. My heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. I choose to. Within um, worship as a whole, um, I want to take some time to talk about music as a particular aspect or dimension uh, within that. Um, So you've mentioned the importance of music and how um, even when you came in contact with the Vineyard Movement, there was this sense that you could could sing these songs and it was something that resonated with you, um, that it connected to the way that you needed to experience and encounter God in that point of time. And when we look at human culture as a whole and the ways that we have, um, that we have worshipped as as a species um, music has has historically always played some role within that um, I'm wondering what what for you specifically resonates with music as something integrated in the act of worship mm. well I think I mean it, it you're right and it's played in a common role because music is something that we can participate in together you know at the same time so there's something very practical about it but there's also something uh very uh this artistic this combination of heart and head this you know mm. all the layers of it and there and because there's lots of you know there's lots of art forms that are very communicative, um, painting and sculpting, but they're also very solitary and one way. You have a painter painting yeah. something to show people, and then they have mm. to look at it, and and that's very can be incredibly powerful. Um, mm. But music is something you know. Of course, we can we can do it together. We we have this incredible instrument. You know, every human being mm. is an instrument of some kind. Uh, now I I get I I get very concerned about this music equals worship worship equals music equation that the modern church of the west seems to make. It's a it's a it's a reductionist uh way of of com- speaking about it that I don't think is helpful. And 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 it's honestly I think 
there's that happens probably has happened throughout history in various ways you know the mm. the very liturgical uh, historical church would speak of worship and you would immediately go oh it's this liturgy right and that can be just as unparticipatory and as passive you know there's there's limitations to language right you know worship you know put it this way worship is of the heart and it's about motivation it can take on many different forms you know and can be mm. expressed in many different forms i guess maybe would be another way of saying it yeah yeah we we mentioned a little bit like some of your musical influences in terms of um kind of the the groups that you were listening to or the artists that you were listening to within um, folk rock and how that was the mother tongue that you were then able to connect to um, in the the worship of the vineyard community. Um, maybe let's talk a little bit more about those musical influences. Um, what was it that resonated, say, within, I mean, within folk rock musicians in particular? Uh, what aspects of that did you say like, oh, this thing I really connect to and this is also going to be a way that unique to this language, this form that I can worship with God also through this? Right. So, okay, so a couple of things come to mind. Um, one is um, when you think of somebody's name, like my name, Brian Dirksen. Okay, so my last name my surname has to do with that which came before me, right? Hmm. And my yeah. first given name has to do with me. So I'm attached to this family. And so I think, let's just say the surname represents the music that came before us. With every new generation, there's a desire to um, individuate a little bit, to create a new expression of that surname so to speak so to speak mm. right so now mm. i'm here i am i'm 19 years old i've 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 leaned into spirituality i want to know god but whenever i go to church somebody always walks up to an organ or a grand piano and plays mm. a certain type of music that immediately with the instrument being used and the style of music being played creates distance. And then mm. I walk into my very first vineyard gathering. I walk into the back and there's a guy in the front with blue jeans and a guitar, acoustic guitar in his hand. And all of a sudden, yeah. when I see that and I hear that, and I have a guitar like that at home that is in my hands. You know, the distance is gone. And and then after that is like, you know, then they start singing and I start, there's something about the melodies, there's something about everything, the, the lyrical phrasing. Mm. I don't need translation. Um, yeah. I remember, you know, one of the first songs I ever heard, Vineyard, you are here and i behold your beauty you know your presence here is the answer to the longing in my heart calm you mm -hmm. know like it was just the words were were open intimate mm -hmm. you weren't singing about god you weren't singing a theology of 
God's greatness and distance. You were singing about that God was near. And mm. I was ready for that. I, I, I had prayed that way in private. I had just never sung that way in public. For me, it was the right... And, and what I didn't realize in stepping into that back, that in a year or two later, I would be on that stage with a guitar in my hand and I would start singing yeah. some of my own songs and that would go travel around the world. But for me, I just felt at home. Hmm. Hmm. I'm thinking even within the, the form of music and being derived from like say the folk rock tradition there's something kind of just even rooted within that that lends itself to authenticity when you think about um i think about like bob dylan in the 60s and you know it's just this this voice and a guitar and there's this vulnerability of um there's not a lot of like there's not a lot of flash to that there's not a lot of like grandiosity it's just a human voice and this simple six-stringed instrument and through that you have this vulnerability of human experience and um it's it's beautiful the way that that is enabled to connect to also our experience of god in the sense of a musical form or a musical language or um an aesthetic experience that is again very simply um this kind of like somewhat um somewhat raw but a definitely authentic opening towards the experience of god that is both that is honest about its humanity as well right and and right there what you just ended with so one of my biggest concerns about the trends now with modern worship music is we're is we're going as i say we're practicing intensity over intimacy mm. we are we mm. are building bigger and more elaborate you know bands and and stage and lighting and sound and like it's just it's just this like this huge thing right and i go it's it's trying to almost like overpower people versus mm. it's almost like creating distance again and, you know, of course, the rock and roll concert, you know, with the stadium rock and U2 and all that kind of stuff. It's where it's like you're you're meant to just be swept up in this in this kind of flood of, of, of sound and sensory everything. But for yeah. me, I like a great concert, but that's to me isn't my community at worship, because in, mm. when my community gathers to worship, I want it to be gentle enough and quiet enough that we can hear each other's hearts, that we can see who's hurting, that we can mm. that we can support each other. And so um, that which I know there's been change. I'm not stupid, you know. It's like <laughs> kids these days. Kids yeah. these days. But but um, and there's and there's of course there's some great like new music coming that's like that's has that singer songwriter or mm. whatever telling stories is still vulnerable but for some mm. reason worship music has started to hom homogenize into this style and this yeah. sound and it's the same and it's not that it's not it's it's lost it's 
it's simplicity and openness and vulnerability and intimacy. And, and again, we just practice over mm-hmm. and over again, intensity. We think, and, but intensity is a blunt instrument. And of course, like, yes, there are intense moments can be in our prayers or in our experiences with God and with each other. But, but it's almost like a drug, like people just, they want that over and over again. And that's all they have a taste for. It's like the, it's like the blockbuster movie playing every night. It's just like this, oh, it's just big, right? Well, then also that that reaction is what's associated with connection with God. So that feeling of being overpowered. And it's scary when you start to understand a little bit about one, just how music works. So like the building blocks of what what comes together to make a certain sound and create a certain experience, but then also how that connects to human psychology. I've like, in my most cynical, it's like, you think of a youth event and the joke would be you mer- you you measure a successful youth event through the amount of, of teenage tears that you can collect in a vial afterwards. But the somewhat disturbing part of that is, I remember there was, there was one experience I was leading worship at a, um, it was a youth retreat and we were at like a, we were at a camp and I was, I was playing with a group of musicians that um, I've been able to spend, spend a bunch of time with. They're really, really talented. We worked really well together. And there was this one particular song that we were playing and, and we did it the first night and then the second night we revisited it. And when we were going through practice, we made um, this decision that, you know, through the bridge, because, you know, most of the most of these songs are built in that verse chorus verse chorus bridge chorus kind of structure and so you have the bridge that starts off really quiet and that you're building and you're building and you're building and then there was this musical decision which was like okay when we reach the peak in the bridge we're going to drop everything out and then we're going to slam into it with the course and musically it, it just it worked really really well and it was almost this disturbing moment where it's that one musical decision that we made changed the way that the youth as i was looking out and watching changed the way that they experienced it and so that was the point where there was like you know that was the point where there was tears that was the point where there was a reaction that was the point where where hands went up and i don't want to i don't want to always be in the position where i'm like if i made this musical decision and this is the reaction then it must have just been the music i don't want to rule out the presence of god to work through whatever medium we're we're engaging in. But at the same time, that is an element that that is somewhat disturbing when you can predict whichever structure you choose to do within that particular set, you can predict the level or the kinds of reaction on the basis of those decisions. Well, it's one of the reasons why I'm passionate about teaching on songwriting and talking to songwriters about other song forms versus verse chorus bridge. You know, you have the triple A, you have the AABA, and every song form does different things and is good for different reasons. And I always say, if, if you're if your worship set or your album is all verse chorus, you're going to get verse chorus fatigue. And now there's this huge pressure that the bridge just has to get bigger and bigger. What we can't, but we can do is we can create an alternate alternative way of expressing these things by um, dialing some things down and by using alternate song structures even and and being very aware, as you said, about uh, manipulation. Big subject. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, in terms of in terms of genre, because like you have a certain set of rules that are connected to the genre, like a certain set of, you know, there's a range of language that you're supposed to be able to do. Like you have your fixed form. And like you were saying about um, the the genre of worship music, when we have this expectation for a certain level of intensity, there's sort of this un, unspoken rule about where you're allowed to go within worship, what you're allowed to say. Um, what what are some of the things that you've noticed within that? Even even just in relation to where you're allowed to go lyrically. Well, I mean, one of the big subjects that I've talked about a lot is the missing song of lament and emotionally healthy uh, spirituality and worship and the fact that, that us as human beings, we are emotional um, people who go through all the range from deep sadness and disorientation to ecstasy and joy and to try mm. and you know as psychologists say if you try and selectively numb emotion you numb everything so if you say i don't mm. want to experience sadness you're also numbing your joy right you're because you're just you're just mm. shrinking your bandwidth and so i think one of the things, you know, lyrically and emotionally we need to do a much better job of is expressing diversity, um, uh, not shying away from the difficult emotions, including lament. I mean, there's no accident in my mind that the songbook in the heart of the Bible, the Psalms, you know, mm-hmm. is 40, 40% lament, which includes sadness, yeah. anger, uh, confusion, um, and and I, I I'll do workshops around the world, and I'll ask people, okay, how many of you have sung a lament in your church in the last year? And the answer is always the same. It's between one to five percent of the room can recall a single lament in a year. And my my response is fairly simple: you are sinning against the suffering. Like when you censor out the song of lament, you, you, yeah, you, you make everyone who's going through suffering in your congregation feel like there's something wrong with them. But it's a, it's a huge subject because, um, we are, we are doing this partly because we are, we are mimicking culture at large and culture at large often really, um, is, um, drowning out emotional vulnerability. And we were seeing a move the other way now, which is really good. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, we we live in a culture we don't really want to talk about death or dying. We've mm-hmm. removed grief, grief rituals from our culture. We change funerals into, we call them celebration of life. We don't even want to call them funerals yeah. anymore. When my mother passed away in 2013, I sent out an update to everybody, and I, I at the end of it with, "Come mourn with us." You know, several people said, "Wow, you you had guts to say that," and they know, like my mother was a great woman of faith. Um, she was a godly woman, and we have hope, you know, in resurrection. Yeah. But she has died. It's time to yeah. mourn. You know, like, and, and, and the fact that that's foreign or strange to people is crazy. It's like this shame of, of asking the wrong question or 
you know, violating theological hope. It's like I, um, we ought not to mourn because, you know, we're we're a people who believe in resurrection. We're a people who believe in a a God who is with us through all things. A God who is reconciling all things to Himself. And so, um, that shame relative to you know feeling the opposite of like rather than hope, you know, I feel. You know, I, I feel pain or even that we feel that like pain and hope are contradictory terms. Well, yeah, we've actually lost the ability to hold paradox together that we could have hope mm. and experience grief at the same time. Well, yeah. that's actually how it works for human beings. But we've become this either yeah. or kind of people like you've either got to mm. be this or you got to be that. You know, it's like it's like in politics or in anything else it's like black and white it's like but but real life is is often a paradox yeah i like what you said earlier about sinning against the suffering and it reminded me of um something that eugene peterson wrote when he when he talked about what what are we doing when we're we're engaged in communal prayer and and talking about the psalms of lament um I believe he said something to the effect, this won't be a direct quote, but when we learn how to pray lament, we're learning how to weep with those who weep. Just as when we when we worship in celebration, if we're not feeling that, we're learning how to celebrate with those who are celebrating. And there's something of an of an empathic entunement or attunement to the community that we're actually a part of. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, in some ways you could say, well, we've done a better job of celebrating with those who celebrate. Sometimes I don't even think we know how to do that anymore. Again, it's this kind of flat line thing, right? Like it's like we've 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 numbed down the the the, the edges. And when we see what we would call extreme emotions in other cultures, we judge it. Right? Yeah. We, we judge it. But meanwhile, I go, I wonder who's healthier. Like, we bottle it up, and then we pay for it inside our bodies. Hmm. Hmm. What have been particularly meaningful songs of lament for you, and, and when have those connected with your experiences? Well, I mean, the, generally, it's, it's the psalms themselves, and, um you know, and, and just singing them afresh, singing, taking the ancient Psalms and singing them in my mother tongue. And so I've, I've, because there's been so few lament songs written to be sung in church that are close enough to my mother tongue, for the most part, I've had to write them. I mean, I've, I've, I, I, I really enjoyed, um, Sandra McCracken's um, album Songs from the Valley from a few years ago. She, I think she had gone through a divorce or something and and still a person of faith. And she writes her, she write, you know, I don't know all the details, but I just remember hearing the album and I just listened to it again the other day and I go, oh, this is so good. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I remember trying one of the songs out with the church um but it's yeah so um you know i uh psalm 13 how long oh lord will you forget me has been mm-hmm. one of my go to hmm hmm 
Yeah. Because it's that, it's that, it holds the both end, you know, the psalm yeah. starts, how long will you forget me? And then it ends with, but I trust in your unfailing love. So I feel forgotten, but I'm trusting that love remains there. And that uh, trust isn't something that requires the elimination of that tension. Well, and that's the thing, like Bible scholars talk about this, like when you, you know, the Psalms were hammered out over hundreds and thousands of years and over multiple generations, and they didn't go back once they had experienced the victory and edit out the first part that describes the struggle they didn't rewrite that part they didn't edit it out they keep it in there it's all part of the expression so i mean what what does if if, if psalm 13 is only says but i trust in your unfailing love you know my heart will rejoice still i sing of your unfailing love selah well what's the but there for you know <laughs> like, yeah well i mean the a fascinating thing with the psalms too is that there's there's language about god him himself that you know, is is troubling in a in a if we're if we're thinking in terms of, you know, what's our what's our high what's our high theology about God? Like what are the things that are permissible and good to say about him? Something that's very beautiful about the Psalms is how grounded and messy um messy they are. Like there's you know, there's the the images that are really familiar to us, like God is lion, God is rock, God is fortress. Um but then there's there's like embarrassing images too like in psalm 78 god is essentially compared to an angry drunk guy like it says the lord awoke as if from sleep like a warrior shouting overcome with wine there's these very very grounded and when you if you look at them as a if you're if you're trying to give your whole theology in a song they don't do that because it's connecting one particular aspect of the experience that needs to be communicated but there's room for that there's an honoring of the experience enough to be specific. Right. And and without that, you give yourself over to almost like a toxic positivity, which has become so rampant in church culture. You know, I, mm. I, I know people who, you know, they they have a they have a miscarriage. They they lose their child and the church doesn't even know how to walk with them. So they eventually mm. have to leave church because people again we have so you know we've so removed uh, grief rituals and and practices that say um this is hard but we're with you that we don't even know what to do and uh it's mm. tragic really yeah or i think of how foreign it would be for a church to say you know there's either either society writ large or just a particular member of their community to say that there's suffering that's being experienced within our body and so we're going to take not just a song or not just a prayer or a section of the of our of our morning liturgy but we're going to take a month or two months or however long it's needed but we're going to enter into a season of grief in the same way that maybe there could be opportunity for a season for celebration. Um, it strikes me as, I think it's a loss that that availability or freedom isn't something that's normative to give room for seasons within a community. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, the seat and we've become disconnected from the seasons in the natural world. 
with our food consumption and in other ways and we've become disconnected with seasons of the soul i think at times and so you know i mean a community of faith i think it's about learning to if we can say this winter well make it through winter together and then and then go into spring and and of course it gets messy because because you have all these different people in different circumstances and some are wintering and some are in harvest and some are you know in the autumn they're they're just about to have to let go and let something die and it's Mm. That's where I think, like, I don't know how mega churches do it. They have to turn to mm. reprogrammed solutions versus real relationships. I call out to you. Now, you mentioned earlier at the beginning, because um, you're in a community right now of about 30 people, and um, you you almost talked about it as these bookends of like, there's this community that I grew up in, and then I've almost come full circle and I'm back into that kind of small, grounded community. Um, what was some of the process for you of getting reintegrated into a small, um, a small body that's oriented around the table? Hell. <laughs> hell. <laughs> I went through hell. I went through church hell several times, a couple of church blow-ups, uh, fights, mm. fights over theology, young earth, old earth, this and that. Mm. And, um, you know, I went through a, a, what I call a wordless winter of five years of, of no songs being written, of only occasional connection with the church and mm. just d disorientation like um mm. and i i had i was kind of you know i'd finally come settled with that okay i guess this is the rest of my life like this i'll i'll be in church when i'm doing events and when i'm not i mm. and mm. one day on a on a walk you know a few years ago my wife looks over at me and she's keen sense of timing and discernment and she just looks at me she goes it's time and mm. i go no not yet like this year is da, 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 da. and i knew exactly what she was talking about no it's time she mm -hmm. says it's time to mm. fully fully re-engage again with a local community of faith you know Whatever it is mm. we're going through and will go through, we need to walk with people and we need to be, you know, shaped by and and chiseled away at and, you know, and and we, you know, spent months and talking, praying, and we felt also full circle to come back into a vineyard fellowship that was our kind of our first real home, spiritual home as adults when we were 19 
And mm. this was an experimental new vineyard thing in our area where we were going to do it more a mixture of ancient some ancient practices, make the table the center. You know, I, one of the mm. things I've, I, I, I say often is that our songs and our, and our sermons are not meant to be the center of worship. They can't bear the weight mm. of that kind of yeah. expectation, but the table is always meant to be the center. But we do that in a very informal, relational way. And um, yeah, it's, it's a gift. Yeah. Well, it's taking, taking ancient practice and again, re reiterating that within within your mother tongue because that that sense of authenticity and familiarity and personability like all of those things are still present even as you're integrating things that have been a part of the rhythm in the life of the church for thousands of years in different languages and in different contexts right right what um in in say taking the kind of like I mean, we've talked about the the anthemic um, nature of, like, say, modern, much of, like, the modern um, worship genre and that kind of, that pursuit of intensity. I wonder, as you've experienced and observed life within community as being table-centric, um, maybe in juxtaposition with that kind of fostering of intensity through, uh, through music, if if worship is something that that opens us up to the presence of God and in a way directs our imagination, um, what is the portrait of God in the table that you see connected with in contrast to maybe the images of God that are fostered through something like um, an anthem-driven practice of worship? Right. Well, I mean, definitely the anthem-driven worship practices are focused on the greatness of God, the majesty of God, and what's happened with that, of course, even when I use the word majesty, is that the the images of God have become intertwined with empire, and and they can only be sustained that way through, um, you know, in nation states, through mega military, through power, mm -hmm. through shock and awe. And yeah. when you pair up spirituality with empire, that's what you get. Whereas I think, you know, the table, the the Jesus-centered um, images of God are, are really Jesus-centered. They are the suffering servant. They are mm -hmm. the, um, the friend, but also the teacher, the... Um, the one who is with us, the one who washes mm. our feet, the one who mm. has scars on his hands and in his side, the one who doesn't, you know, snuff out a smoldering wick, uh, doesn't break a bruised reed, you know, like the gentleness, yeah. the, 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 the real, the humanity, the compassion, the mercy. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, I understand, you know, like God as creator, um, is such, uh, magnificently beyond almost our comprehension. There's this, this mystery 
to God that is incomprehensible. But ultimately, I just trust that. I, I trust that as a as a Christian, my faith rests in the in the incarnation and in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm. And mm. Um, that's when I come back to the table. I, 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 I don't put my weight on the anthems. I don't put my weight on the charismatic preacher, the way the Protestant Reformation moved the center from, you know, the ornate Catholic altar to the pulpit. Our table isn't so ornate. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, and I, 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 I yeah. have, ve I have very good Catholic friends, and I, in some ways, sometimes I feel like I connect, I identify more with them than I do with the mega evangelical church because they seem mm -hmm. to have room for uh, the reality of suffering, and you know. But I, 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 I didn't, that's not mother tongue for me, that kind of ornate yeah. energy and uh, almost spectacle. I need something yeah. simpler and more informal. Yeah. Yeah. No, I resonate with that because I've, I mean, in my own journey as a, as a worship leader, I've, I've connected a lot in, I mean, when I, when I was in college, much of my study was doing research on early church liturgies and um, second temple liturgical practices within the Jewish diaspora. And so there's a lot of things that I've learned and drawn from the ancient practices of the church. But whereas um, some really close friends of mine who have, in studying these things, have, have moved or entered into, say, the Eastern Orthodox Church or um, into, into the Catholic Church, for me, I've felt like there's there's so much that I need to gain from this, but I also can't pretend to be Greek, or I can't I can't pretend that this is this is my cultural language because there's there's too much of me that's that's grown up and kind of speaks this language of of informality that even as I even as I recognize and I and I draw from and I and I and I I take I take so much from the portrayals of God and and the the form the formative power of ritual practice i i have to find some way to integrate that into my own my own language you're speaking my language there because that was you know when i went through my last church blow up in 2010 and i thought you know maybe i'm going to end up being anglican or or orthodox or something because i needed eucharist and i needed mm -hmm. some of the simple rituals um but after several years of being in and out of those settings, I realized I, exactly, I'm not Anglican, mm -hmm. I'm not Greek, I'm I don't come from that ancient world. I and and I have a wife who is very practical and is mm -hmm. not very impressed by words. I have special needs sons who can't even really talk. You know, I I, I have to just. Be me, yeah. Let th let things be what they are. I mean, my wife and I we don't we don't have kids, but her her work is um, she's a rec aide for a number of families with with children with special needs, and in a similar way, just in connecting with those families and and reflecting on their experiences and the unique ways that that connection is able to take place. Um, that's been a very formative aspect of the way that we think about worship. 
and the experience and connection with God. Because if it if it can't encompass these kinds of, you know, non-typical ways of communication or of experience or of just the perception of this world, then whatever faith practice we're relying on, it's it's worthless if it can't encompass that. If it can't encompass that that difference. No. In terms of so we've spoken about the way that these differing practices can orient us towards a perspective uh, or a, a different perspective of God. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the formative capacity of that and what that translates to the way that we're integrated into community and what the shape of the church looks like when, if, if the church is meant to be a community that's formed in the image of Christ, formed in the image of God, there's a very different community that's created when that God is the the conquering king in contrast to the suffering servant. Um, so what are maybe the ways that you've you've seen that shift in practice uh, to something more table centric? What does that look like on the ground in terms of the way that the community functions or postures itself in mm. the world? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, for me, it's just, it's, we live in a culture that, that um, worships success and that sees almost like worship and, and, and our expressions of faith is like this constant ascent. In the Bible and history, we see worship at le- at the very minimum, it's descent before it's ascent. And for me, it's just like, f- becoming a community of people that just um it walks through ordinary life together like we are i think this is what we've done the in some way the poorest in in an overall way is we are we our love is conditional our mm. affirmation of people is conditional. Our blessing is conditional. All of those things. And I think that the, you know, the table brings us back to um, uh, a level, a level ground, a um, a non-hierarchical um, mm. fellowship really you know you know like like really i mean i don't know i mean the 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 word fellow um is too male uh <laughs> you know yes much like brethren yeah there you go all of these words and 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 i just think we're women and men are image bearers um yeah we we just we're walking together we're learning from each other we're breathing and we're helping each other breathe and i i don't mm. know i'm not that interested in grandiose things anymore yeah maybe it says yeah. I'm, I'm an old man now or something i'm 55 <laughs> yeah you know no i don't think it's just because you're 55 i i resonate with that a lot and I think like increasingly um, in terms of, I think the narratives that are ascribed to the political polarization that we experience, there's, 
almost this like expectation that we inherit from our culture to to have some narrative of what our victory would look like and that victory in terms of how how our group is going to be shown victorious or to dominate over whoever we've termed to be other at whatever particular moment um i mean i think about you know you see the titles of of you know debates between politicians is like this person destroyed this other person or in terms of apologetics how you know this this theologian destroys atheist or destroys whoever whoever happens to be the other in that moment and what's profound to me about something like the the table is that like inherent to that is is a critique that that if the one that we're we're imitating is the one who emptied himself, the one who counted victory and defeat, um, or in the language of of John's revelation, you know the Lion of Judah comes and behold, it's the Lamb led to the slaughter. That that inversion, that upside down kingdom, that reversal of the expectations of what our power is, and in something like the table and something like communion it's that we are made whole as we're willing to be broken as we're willing to participate in the breaking of bread and the gathering back together again mm. this um the, i have a song called broken and beautiful where the pre-chorus goes this is the way you've chosen to say mm. this is the way you make all things new right like mm. and, and it's exactly what you're describing we have a way and it's mm. through triumph and through muscle and through power. But the way yeah. of Christ, the way he brings salvation, the way he makes all things new is through death, through sacrifice, through kneeling down, washing feet, all of that. Yeah. Um, being mindful of the time, and as, as you mentioned, you're going to have to jump off in a couple minutes. Um, I think thinking about the present moment and we've we've spoken a little bit about this with regards to breath prayer but um our worship is in the midst of a very long pandemic at this point um i remember like even a couple weeks weeks into it at the start of it it was like you know we're gonna press into you or i wanted to at that point as a worship leader like i wanted to press into being being able and capable of lament but um couldn't have imagined that it we'd still be here, you know, over a year later. And it's exposed so many things in terms of the currents of systemic injustice. It's exposed the kind of the forms of the scaffolding that we've relied upon in terms of what we expect of from God, what we expect worship and community to look like. There's so many things that have been removed and taken away. Um, so I wonder how has this impacted you and what have been some of the grounding practices that in this past year have almost brought brought a, an intensified clarity in terms of one what worship is but also just who you believe god is forming you and the community that mm. you're part of to be well i think it's 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 kind of we weaning us from adrenaline a little bit uh you know mm -hmm. like by by the whole slowing things down by not being able to do things that were exciting we've had mm -hmm. to trust in a deeper um contentment in slower paces uh, in mm -hmm. in simpler pleasures um mm -hmm. 
recognizing how much we we as human beings had got to a place of this kind of heightened um, seeking of, of experiences and seeing new places and doing exciting things. And that, and also that is also with our faith, like going to mm. conferences, being with thousands of other people singing at the top yeah. of our lungs. And, and it's this kind of heightened thing. And then we start feeling like we have to have these things in order to be spiritually alive. And along comes yeah. a little, a little virus that says, uh, not so quick. And, uh, and we yeah. have to all learn to slow down and find a new way of, mm. of a new rhythm almost like a yeah. new way of being and and that's been a great gift of course we resist it but you know eventually you have to surrender to it and i think mm. we're in the season where we're we're i think there's some of that going on which is good i've seen some churches really adapt well to this um, become more people focused, less program focused, and and for us at the table, you know, it's been it's been that we we haven't had to change a lot other than we've had to lose our physical eating together. Yeah, yeah. As as a way to wrap up, um, you know, you're someone who's spent a great deal of years um, working and and actively engaged in the life of the Christian community and there's an element of like when our profession interact intersects with our faith there's there's a certain way that that can change what our experience and perception of faith is there's the capacity for that to move into you know move into cynicism when in a certain way you've been able to see behind the veil of you know what goes on so to speak um but as you've spent all of these years involved in in this life of engagement in the christian community what has remained beautiful and compelling to you or intensified as beautiful and compelling in the way of Jesus? Well, um, the, the, I, I hope the ever deepening revelation of who Jesus is and really people like, like people, mm -hmm. people's journeys into grace. Like, and that's the one thing I, I do really miss about, going out and doing conferences or concerts is I would get to meet people and I would get to hear their story, look them in the face and hear them, you know, talk about their story. So for me, that's the compelling, beautiful part is, is people and, and, and mm. how I see Jesus in them. Absolutely. Hmm. What gives you hope as you look at the life or the future of the church here in Canada? You know, what gives me hope is that I, I, I see evidence that people are opening themselves up to what I call the still small voice of love, that, that they are opening themselves up and re recognizing that the world doesn't need um, us to prove that we're right. <laughs> what the world mm -hmm. needs is, is, is our compassion, our service, and... I, I see evidence of that in people. Um, you know, just last night, I was with a group of people from our little from the table, our faith community, and and as I I looked around the different you know little Zoom tile squares, 
and I know their mm-hmm. stories and I know how their lives are revealing grace in their neighborhoods to their to the people in their world and I you know mm-hmm. they are all in different you know work we know like business owner school teacher you know different different professions but they're all learning to love they're all they're all open to new things um you know that that gives me hope it's just it's people right and what god's doing in them that gives me hope Hmm. that's beautiful well brian thank you so much for for speaking with us and um yeah it's it's just it's beautiful to be able to hear from and connect with um, the ways that you've experienced and, and received the openness to God in the course of your life. And so really appreciate the conversation. You're very welcome. Glad to do it. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Canadian Orthodox. To learn more from Brian Dirksen and to keep up with new releases, you can connect with him on social media, Spotify, Apple Music, and through his website via the links in the show notes. This episode was recorded and produced by myself, Tim Harder, on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam nations. We acknowledge the land as an act of reconciliation and gratitude to those on whose territory we reside. If you connected with this conversation and would like to stay up to date with future episodes, please subscribe to this feed wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes are, once again, going to drop every other Monday. You can help us promote the show by leaving a review and sharing on social media. And you can also connect with me on Instagram at IamTamathios. If you'd like to help support this project financially, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Tim Harder. This is a passion project run on the side of my real job, so your support not only helps to cover the monthly production expenses, but also helps to free up time for me to create more content and to expand the reach of the show. We want to thank you again for joining us and participating in this conversation. We'll talk soon. Peace.